Today's passage was the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 through uh, 20 for the kids. Uh, this There will be some little symbols in here occasionally. That's on the kids' notes to help them out to think about some stuff as, as we go along today. Today is the last message on the, the mission of our church, the mission statement that we have. And um, it's been a four-week study. We're answering the question, what are the main things that a church should be involved in? There's a lot of really, really good things. But what are the, the things that we really need to focus on? And the Bible seems to indicate that there are four major categories that we need to focus on. That is, worship God in spirit and truth, grow in knowledge through discipleship and fellowship, serve one another in the community, and share the gospel. So four weeks ago, we talked about worship God in spirit and truth from Matthew 22, verses 37 and and following. Then we uh, also took that passage to talk about uh, serving one another because we're to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, and we're to love our neighbors ourselves. And then the last two weeks, last week and today, we're looking at the Great Commission, which we just read. And part of that is to share the gospel with people. But the other part, the command, if you remember, is to make disciples. And so if you think about it, um, the church is in the disciple making business. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about this organization, Providence Bible Church. I'm not talking about Church Universal, uh, although I am. I'm actually saying it's everyone's responsibility to make disciples. And you make up the church as a whole. And so the church is in the disciple-making business. The, 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 the word disciple in this command that Jesus gives called make disciples literally means a learner. A disciple, it's mathetaos, mathetos, and it just simply means uh, a learner. However, when you look at the time that Jesus was alive, discipleship was much more than that. Remember, he called his 12 disciples. You remember that? What did those disciples do? Did they meet from class every morning at 8 o'clock and get done at 3? They did not, did they? The, in that day, when somebody became a disciple of a rabbi, they spent as much time as possible with that rabbi. I'm not going to get into some of the uh, more um, unpolitically correct parts of it, but when I say they spent all their time with the rabbi, I literally mean they spent all their time with the rabbi in all different circumstances that you can imagine with the idea that the rabbi was going to do two things. Number one, the rabbi is going to teach them scriptures in, in, in formal learning situations. And number two, that they're going to learn how to act out those scriptures because they're going to become like their rabbi. That's, that's the uh, New Testament concept. And, and, and so in the New Testament, a, a disciple is someone who follows Christ in such a way 
that they become like Christ. They, they're learning about Him and they're following Him. They're becoming more like Him. That is why Jesus said in Luke um, 6.40, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And so the goal here at Providence Bible Church, the goal at any church should be that the people who are in that congregation become like Jesus Christ. Is there any greater goal to aspire to. There isn't. There's no greater goal to aspire to than to become like Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of the Great Commission. Verse number 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so disciples are taught to obey Christ so that they end up becoming like him. Now, imitation is is integral integral to discipling and that is the, the it's a process of of transferring your lifestyle to the next generation let me ask you a question dads we got all the kids here in in the auditorium today have you ever thought of your kids your boys as little disciples moms have you ever thought of your daughters as little disciples they are you've seen it over and over and over if if dad is a gearhead, chances are at least one of the boys is going to become a gearhead, right? If dad loves golf, chances are one of the boys is going to... I, I, I didn't have a picture. I, I meant to have a picture. My, my oldest son, when he was four years old, I took two golf clubs to the pro shop and had them cut down to his size. One, it was like a five wood and then a wedge. And, you know, the grip on the, the hand, the grip was more than the shaft coming out of the grip. It was, it was really cute. But at four, five years old, he was riding around the golf course with me and, um, it was, it was really cute. Can I tell this, by the way? But, um, we, I would let him tee off with me and then we'd pick his ball up and he'd ride in the cart with me to the green and then he would chip up on the green or whatever else. And he, Occasionally go, hey, dad, I beat you because I had a really bad hole or whatever. But um, but you think about it. um, Dad models marriage values, doesn't he? He's teaching his boy how you treat your wife. Moms are treating uh, little Susie or whoever, how a wife treats her husband. They are our discipleship. The disciples, Christian values and social values are being learned by sons. And it's true in the church, too. As a matter of fact, Paul made it very clear as Paul grew in Christ, he said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. So discipleship is all over the place, isn't it? Whether you're talking about in in, uh, social values or political values or or monetary values or or, uh, Christian values, there's discipling going on everywhere. And so to sum up what is discipleship as we get into it, and I'm just basically defining it. uh, First of all, there's the learning component, and that is teaching people who Christ is. We're teaching uh, here at the church who Christ is. And then second thing that we're trying to do is to um, the incarnation. In other words, uh, we, by the way, the, the incarnation, that means in the flesh, right? And so we model what it looks like to be like Christ in the fellowship of believers. We're, we're incarnating Christ's characters. And so the less uh, mature Christian, less mature believer becomes more like Christ because they see the truths of Christianity lived out in someone and it makes it very real to them. Have you ever seen that? 
you have. Uh, probably every single one of us, unless you're a very new Christian, you have watched a more mature Christian than you live out Christian values and it's taught you something. That's, that's, that's one, that's the, the, the fellowship uh, part of, or the incarnation of discipleship. So the goal of all churches should be to make disciples. And this is definitely Paul's goal. Colossians 1.28, he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So I meant to have this quote up on here, but I didn't. The elders and I have just basically finished a book called uh, uh, The Trellis and the Vine. And it's about church ministry. And in there, in The Trellis and the Vine, the authors say the mission of church is this. Listen to what they say. The basic work of any Christian ministry is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of God's Spirit. That's part of the Great Commission, isn't it? And, here we go, to see people converted, changed, and grow to maturity in that gospel. That's the goal of Providence Bible Church. That should be the goal of any church. So then, here's the question that we're going to consider today. What does that look like in the local church? How does it work in the local church? Uh, that's, that's a question that we're going to answer. I've already given you the answer, and I'm just going to talk about those two components. The first thing is that we teach who Christ is. We teach about Christ. We teach about His person and His work. We teach about His character. We talk about what He did, um, what He taught, recorded in Scriptures, and, and teach um, about those who were excellent role models of who he, who he was. The teaching about Jesus Christ, the more you know Christ, the more astounded you are by Him, the more you understand Him. It's that formal teaching about Jesus Christ and him crucified that's so important to the church. Now, I want to show you how the early church modeled it. So take your Bibles and turn to Acts 2 and 42. Acts 2, 42. Now, back history. If you remember, Peter preached the sermon on the day of Pentecost. Remember that? The Bible says that 3,000 souls were saved and baptized. Now, that sermon was on the Temple Mount. If you've ever been there, on the south, the southern steps of the Temple Mount are all kinds of mikveh. Mikveh are uh, ritual baths. And so these people were baptized in these ritual baths. And then the church started growing. And this is just almost immediately after the birth of the church, the 3000, Acts 2.42 says this. It says, And they devoted themselves to four things. Number one... What? The apostles' teaching. Number two, the fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, the prayers. Now what is interesting to note about these, look at this. This is the early church. This is how they're learning. What is it? It's it's all community-centered. You see that? They're doing things together. They, they. It doesn't say each went back to his home and read his Bible. It doesn't, it doesn't say anything like that. It, it's a very community-minded, uh, the first century church was very corporate in the way that they did things. And, and now let's just think about today. What, what do we know about the West? 
The West, we have that rugged individualism. You remember studying that in, uh, in history class? A manifest destiny. You know, Americans are people that pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get it done, right? That, those sort of, uh, that is completely opposite of the teaching of the Bible as far as how we get things done in community. In the Bible, the community is extremely important and it's done as a community and it's 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 out of sync with the culture today. And so if you want to be countercultural, be a Christian because it, it doesn't fit the culture of today. But the Bible says what? Look at this again. The very first phrase, they what? They devoted themselves. It's a very interesting word, that, that word devoted themselves. It, it means they did it with in, in intense effort that continued over time. That's what the verb means there, devoted themselves. They, they devote, to devote yourself some, to something is to let people know you're serious. You're very serious. Hey, I'm going to devote myself to learning Latin. I'm going to devote myself to uh, learning a new hobby. I'm going to devote myself to whatever the case may be. It's, it's serious. And so they devoted themselves to something. And what did they devote themselves to? Four things. One more time. They were serious about the teaching of Scripture. They were serious about getting together life-touching life. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. They were serious about breaking bread together, and they were serious about praying together. They devoted themselves to these things. As a matter of fact, if you study that, that verb, devoted themselves, do you know what it's used for most of all through the New Testament? Prayer. The church gets together and devotes itself to prayer. And so it's, it's a very fascinating word. Now, here's the question. Here's a question I have. If someone, by the way, it's used in verse number 46. I didn't mention this. It's used again in verse number 46. If you look at it again, it says every day, the Holman Christian Standard Bible says they devoted themselves. The ESV says attending. And every day attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes. And so they're devoting themselves to the temple complex. Now, I, I should have thrown a picture up here. That if you've ever been to Jerusalem, the Temple Mount is huge. And on the southern end of the Temple Mount was this uh, colonnade, huge colonnade. It was called Solomon's Portico or Solomon's Stables. It was so big that 3,000 people getting saved, the Bible says that they used to meet there, easily handle it. Now in the location of, of Solomon's Portico, the, the Arabs have come in, the Muslims have come in, they've dug under the Temple Mount, and they made an underground mosque in Solomon's Portico that holds, get this, almost 50,000 people. So the Temple Mount's huge, and and this is where the church was meeting. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the Temple Complex, and then they went from house to house breaking bread together. And so the apostles' teaching uh, uh, occurred at the Temple at Solomon's Portico. You can see this in chapter 3 and verse number 11 of Acts. But here's my question for you. My question is, if someone who doesn't know you were to examine your life, could they determine that you were devoted to the preaching and teaching of God's Word? Parents, your kids are here right now. Parents, if I were to talk to your children, would they say that you're devoted to God's Word? 
Or would they, would they say instead you're, you're devoted to career, making money, health, eating right, whatever the case may be? Do your parent, do your children, would they affirm that in, in my dad's life, I know my dad loves God and he's devoted to his word? Very serious question to ask ourselves, right? Why is it so important to commit ourselves to, to God's word? Well, it's a very simple answer, and you don't have to turn here, but in on the eve of his crucifixion, in John 17, Jesus is praying, and he prays the Lord. He says, sanctify them in truth. Listen, your word is truth. Jesus called the Holy Spirit later on uh, the spirit of truth. And so he's the one that illuminates the word. Peter, we just got done studying First Peter, right? Peter says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that it may grow up in the salvation. So if you want to learn the truth, then you study the word. You devote yourself to hearing the preaching of God's Word. You devote yourself to hearing the teaching of God's Word. In the New Testament, the the teaching of God's Word is central to the health and spiritual growth of the church. Now, how how does the church teach about Christ? Let's ask that question. How, How does the church do that? What are some of the avenues? Well, the one primary avenue is the Sunday morning worship service. Right? Every Sunday morning, the Word is proclaimed, the Word is taught, and the, you are encouraged to obey the Word and to become more like Jesus Christ. That's, that's the goal every Sunday morning. That, that, that's the goal. But secondly, another way that we do what we would call formal teaching would be in our adult Bible fellowship classes or more commonly known as Sunday school classes. You, you get to know God's Word. For example, we've got a class on marriage going on right now. We have another class on, or not, sorry, uh, raising parent, raising, not even raising parents. <laughs> I'll get it out. Well, you are raising parents, but you're raising children first. Um, and then we have another class on an Old Testament survey, trying to show everyone how the Old and New Testament fit together and, and how you can view it as a whole. And um, I think the classes are excellent myself, but um, we, we can do that. Another way to do this is to read books together. Read books on, on uh, aspects of the Bible and Jesus Christ together. And so the church ought to have a system of formal instruction set up the congregation, a congregation of, of the church is known as what? One of the analogies is a body. Now, um, when you stub your toe, and your toe, how much does a toe weigh? <laughs> Doesn't weigh very much, does it? But if you stub your toe, what happens to your gait as you walk? Right? If you, if you hurt your back, your lower back, doesn't take much, right? Uh, uh, I was in Martin's the other day, and there was a, a blind lady there with her, her stick walking around. One little bitty function, eyesight, toes, or whatever it may be, really disables the body, doesn't it? More than we would like to admit. We like to think we're tough and everything. Now, take that analogy and apply it to the life of a church. The church, really, a congregation is only as strong as you are. 
I'm not going to say anything like you're the weakest link or we'll leave all that alone. But, uh, but in, in, in truth, um, we depend upon, I depend upon you. Weird to think, isn't it? I literally depend upon you. When you are working properly in the body of the church, I benefit as well as everybody else. And so the church is only as strong as the member who is weakest in their knowledge and understanding obedience to Jesus Christ. That's really weird to think about, I think. That's why Jesus commanded that we observe all that He commanded you. It's no stretch to say that if you view corporate worship and teaching as something optional, that you will attend if there's nothing better to do on a Sunday, then you're not really a disciple. In, in reality, you're, you're disobeying Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's the reality of the thing. This is why the author of Hebrews says this, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting the, to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so, so we have formal instruction in the church. This verse lends itself to moving to the second major category of, of discipleship in the church, and that is, I'm just going to call it fellowship. Okay, we called it incarnation earlier. It doesn't matter. This is the second part of of growing disciples. And this is what I talked about already. This is imitating Christ and imitating people who imitate Christ. It's life touching life. It's getting together. It's it's uh, it's it's conveying the the nature of believers to na- to other believers in small groups or with one person or through intensely personal relationships in which evangelism and humility and and suffering for Christ and other subjects are taught and discussed and exemplified, uh, exemplified and tested and so when you see the, what's the phrase they say the proof is in the pudding right how strong is this person you see it when they suffer, when they're doing well, what they're going through their, their daily life. I had a, I had a relative who I, I really, really looked up to when I was younger. And he, he taught about Christ, read his Bible and stuff. But I, I found out what he really was like when, uh, his wife died. And the fact of the matter is, he wasn't as strong spiritually as I originally thought he was as, as he went through it. And so we watch people, and, and when you are, are modeling Christ, you're modeling His character, you're modeling His obedience, when times get tough, you encourage other people to be like Jesus Christ. Isn't that great? Now, let's go back to Acts 2.42. You're there, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's the second thing that um, they devoted themselves to? The fellowship. Okay, so so let's just get this straight. This is not proof that they were Baptists. Okay? They weren't having potlucks. That wasn't the case at all. Um, The word fellowship, koinonia, means a it's a close association it's it's a partnership it's a participating together it's it's a very close knit relationship and scripture teaches that God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others 
That's how it's done. It's not done just by me. It's done when believers bring the word to other believers. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians 4. I want to show you something here in a minute. I'm going to, I'm going to get to it in just a second. But Ephesians chapter 4. Now, God, I'm going to say it one more time, God transforms lives as people bring his word to other people. We see this done in, in Ephesians 4. I'm not going to read all the verses, but if, if you look at verses 10 to 13, what, what Paul's teaching in, in Ephesians 4 is that it is our interconnectedness as believers that help us to grow spiritually. Verses 10 to 13 is an emphasis on the role that the leadership plays in the growth of the body, isn't it? And he gave some apostles and pastors, teachers, prophets, and so on and so forth. For what? for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. And so my function in the body is to uh, train and to build you up so that you can go out and do the ministry, right? That's what, that's what those verses are teaching. But then notice the next verses, verses uh, 15 and six, 14 and 15, by the way, indicate how we help each other. Look at those verses. Rather, speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in every way into Him which is the head, in the Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in what? In love. So you speak the truth in love. And by the way, the truth is not, um, you know, Esther... That does not look good on you. That's not the truth we're talking about here. The truth is always talking about the Word. Remember how I said that earlier? It's speaking the Word of God to one another in a loving way. And so speaking the truth in love indicates that Christians are to share the truth of God's Word with one another. And so... It's really hard to speak the truth of God's Word in someone else's life when you're not meeting with them. You ever thought about that? It's really hard for y'all to speak the truth in love to one another when the only time you are here or together is here for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning. See what I mean? Because you got me up here doing all the talking. You're not doing any talking. Um, and, And so... In a fallen world, we live in a fallen world, there are countless opportunities to speak the truth into other people's lives, isn't there? In a fallen world. If you have, a, if you have adult children and you have a close relationship with them, you're probably speaking the truth in your life all the time, aren't you? You have young children, you're doing the same. You have friends, you're doing that. Um, and so we're, we're in a fallen world We're getting together, speaking God's Word in each other's lives. And the promise is, look at uh, Ephesians 4, 16. The promise is that when each part is doing what? Working properly, that it will make the body grow as it builds us up in love. So here's the question. What are you, are you fulfilling your part in the body? Are you? Are you fulfilling your part in the body? Are you are you uh, working properly now? Colossians is very parallel to this, so turn to Colossians chapter three. I want to show you one more one more little passage here. 
Colossians 3, verses 14 to 17, explains how we're to help one another grow. I want you to see this. Verse number 14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. Now I want you to note five characteristics. What are the five characteristics in this in bringing the Word to other people's lives? Well, they're these. Number one, we are to do it, the context is that we're to do it in love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Number two, we are to teach. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching. Isn't that what it says? That's not talking to the pastor. That's talking to the regular church members. Number three, we are to admonish one another. Now, what does that word admonish mean? Um, it means to teach to correct behavior. Teach to uh, correct behavior. Have you ever taken a class that requires like skills? Maybe it's maybe it's a computer programming class or or uh, something like that. And you're teaching. And then the student says, I, I know what you're saying, but I can't quite get what you're, you're talking about. You let me see. And you look at it and you say, Oh, I see what's going on. You're doing this. Instead, you need to do that. Right? That's, that's admonishing, teaching to correct. It's not finger wagging or anything like that. Number four, we are to sing together. And finally, in everything we do, we do it to the glory of God. And whatever we do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, what does biblical fellowship look like in the 21st century? What does it look like? Well, it looks like Christians getting together to minister together. It might mean getting together for coffee and studying the Bible or over breakfast or sharing a meal together in your home, one-on-one with the intent to speak gospel truth. It can be done when you're splitting wood for, for a widow, preparing meals for the homeless, or helping one another in corporate ministry. You can talk. Um, this, this is what fellowship looks like. Remember, fellowship is, is life-touching life, igniting one another's lives with biblical truth. My closest friends are the ones with whom I have true fellowship. For example, my friend from Memphis, that, that I, talk, I talk to him every single week, and without fail, I get done with that conversation, and I am encouraged to love God more. Maybe my behavior, my thoughts are corrected a little bit, or, or maybe I'm encouraged to study another concept in the Bible. I love those kind of relationships. I'll never forget, my friend in Wisconsin will be here in a couple of weeks. He won't be able to come to church, but first time, one of the first times 
since I met him. I knew him, talked to him a little bit. We were standing in a, uh, a place where there's an auction, a charity auction going on. And there's a group of us men, about four of us standing around. And he starts talking to us about how what God has been teaching him and, and that he needs to correct a little bit of his own personal behavior and his thoughts. And I walked away from that conversation thinking two things. Number one, you know what? I need to work in that area too. And number two, I want to get to know that guy because he talks about the word of God. Those are the kind of people that you want to start being around more and more talking about God's word and, 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 and doing those sort of things the, you want to stir up one another to love and good works, right? Fellowship involves getting together in small groups, uh, you, you should try to get into one of our community life groups. Uh, they don't, they're not together to impart information alone, although that's what happens. The idea behind them is as your life touches other lives, we grow together, we pray together, we study together, we laugh together, we cry together, we minister to one another, we're using our gifts with one another. That is genuine biblical fellowship. You see how it works in the, in the church today? There's, there's myriads of opportunities for Christian fellowship, stirring somebody up. But there are some dangers. I want to give you two dangers. There are dangers involved because I know what's going on. Some people are sitting here saying, you know what, that sounds all well and good, but I'm doing fine by myself. Actually, you're not. You're not. And the reason I can tell you that is because the Bible says you're not. All right. Dangers. What are the what are the dangers? Number one, loss of spiritual vitality. The thought that says I have a personal relationship with Christ and therefore I am fine without fellowship is is completely incorrect. You can certainly do that, but it's going to cost you your spiritual vitality. Have you ever have you ever uh, sat around a campfire and just watched it burn down? I'm a I, I'm a former fire chief, and I have a hard time getting campfires started. Just to let you know, <laughs> our little our little community uh, up where I came from, one of the guys on the other fire department, fortunately wasn't mine, um, was starting fires, burning down barns mainly. Got caught, sent to prison for arson. I could everybody joked I could never have that happen because I could never get the fire started to begin with. But um, but anyway, um, if you've ever sat around a campfire. And it burns down to the coals. Have you ever taken a coal and set it off to the side of the rest of the coals? What happens to that coal? It gets cold very quickly because it's not with all the other coals. And that is the idea behind Christian fellowship. Yeah, you may think you're doing fine, but there may not be that, that driven fire for the Lord that you could have if you're around other believers. You see what I'm talking about? There, there's a danger of no spiritual vitality. It, it, it cannot remain hot when it's apart from others, and it's very hard for somebody to remain hot when they're not around other Christians. You, matter of fact, I'm going to say you can't do it because you have to be touching other people's lives, and they have to be touching your life. This is how God made us. You know, second danger, and, and this is a big danger too, and that is loss of security. Loss of security. We, we just got done studying First Peter, and we saw where Peter said that uh, we're sheep, and what is Satan? He's like a roaring lion, right? And our proximity of our lives together 
help us remain safe during times of storms and difficulties. I, I read one time about uh, sequoia trees in California. I wanted to see if it was true, and I researched it this week, and it's absolutely true. This is what they said about the giant sequoias. Their root system only goes down. Now think, these are trees that are 250 to 300 feet tall, and they literally weigh millions of pounds, is what I read. This is from the State of California website, by the way. But their roots are only four to five feet down in the ground. Now, how does a tree like that not blow over in a storm? Well, there's two things that happen with these giant sequoias. First thing, even though the roots are only four to five feet in the ground, they can go out between 150 and 200 feet out. But secondly, they only survive in groves and the roots get intertwined together. So in order for one tree to blow down, literally the whole grove would have to blow down. And that's just not going to happen. They're intertwined. They're interconnected. And that's the same idea with Christians. We are interconnected. We're a body. We're a temple being built up for the glory of God. You see? We need one another. You can't stand by yourself. The, the idea of the roaring lion and the sheep is when one sheep gets away from the herd, they're in danger. And so there's a loss of security when you don't fellowship. Jesus said this. L- listen, Jesus talked a lot about discipleship. And this is what he said. He said, you must count the cost. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Count the cost. If you're going to be one of Christ's disciples, you have to count the cost. And some have counted the cost and decided that the cost is too high. And the problem is that they're using the wrong system of measurement. Have you ever done that? First year we were married... Uh, I, I was in school full time and I worked nights and early mornings and Heather worked during the daytime. And sometimes I get done with class and I come home. And one time I decided to do her a favor and that was to make some potato soup. And I had her card and looking at her recipe. And as I'm going along, I'm putting the ingredients in this potato soup. And I thought, wow, that's an awful lot of flour, two cups of flour. So I put two cups of flour into the potato soup and I'm real proud of myself and uh, we got ready to eat it, and it was like a brick. <laughs> I was using the wrong system of measurement because the recipe actually called for two tablespoons and not two cups of flour. You use the wrong system of measurement, and you're going to get in trouble every time. And in the same way, some people are saying this, if I'm going to do this whole fellowship thing, if I'm going to do this whole discipleship thing, that means I'm going to have to cut out some stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to have to cut this stuff out. I, I have another friend in Memphis who, um, who told me many times over, he said, I don't have time to study the Bible. And yet he had time to work out. He had time to watch NBA basketball late at night you know, West Coast teams and stuff like that. But he didn't have time to to read the Bible. He counted the cost 
and decided that temporal values are more important than eternal values. And anybody who says to themselves, you know what, these things are costly because I have X, Y, Z, and so it's not worth it. You have flipped your value system around. You're using the wrong unit of measure to decide if the cost is worth it or not. And so, yes, you will not miss out on anything temporal. But you will miss out on eternal blessings. And so I urge you, dear believer, count the cost of discipleship and fellowship. Jesus said that those who count the cost and find him worth, truly worthwhile are truly his disciples. Remember the parable of the pearl great price? Remember that? What did the man do? He found the pearl great price. He sold everything he had in order to get a hold of that pearl. And to obtain it. Jesus is saying that there are, His disciples are the ones who realize that eternal life is infinitely more valuable than anything else this world has to offer. And discipleships, disciples completely reorient their life in order to serve Jesus Christ. Now we as a church, we can create all the structures in the world, but only you can reorient your time and your treasure and your talents, right? And so the question I guess I have is, Jesus worth your reordering your priorities? Do you believe that the mission of the church, not Providence Bible Church, but the church, your mission as a Christian is great enough that you will reorient your priorities and follow Him? Providence Bible Church exists to worship God in spirit and truth, to grow in knowledge through discipleship and fellowship, to serve one another and the community, and to share the gospel. These are non-negotiables, and these are the activities that all believers are called to do. And by God's grace, providence will excel in our mission for Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for your amazing, wonderful salvation. I thank you that Jesus, as the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. I thank You for the way that You have set things up so that we can learn Jesus and Him crucified and and speak the truth to one another in love. And and through that, we help one another grow. And every single uh, member of the congregation, every single uh, regular tender is important to the life of the church. Lord, Make this church a church that is so eternally oriented, Lord, that you'll be pleased with everything that we do at Providence Bible Church. And may we, through your great, tremendous power, affect not only Culpeper, but the world around us. In Christ's name we pray.